0: Welcome to this edition of When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine, a discussion of sustainability, sustainability <laughs> sustainable living and what that means to you and me. I'm Jay Warmke.
1: And today I'm Annie Warmke. You
0: are today. And we're going to talk about, uh, I'm not quite sure what we're talking about, the difference between food forests and forest farming is what I've got written down here. Or my second title is, is small really beautiful? And that question is being posed to Catherine Favor. Now, Catherine is the Sustainable Agricultural Specialist based at the National Center for Appropriate Technologies out there in the Western Regional Office. And, Catherine, uh, according to the bio that I found about you on the internet, so it must be true, it says (laughs) that you've worked on organic farms in California, Montana, and South America for over 10 years. You were manager of an organic vineyard for several years. And you also spent two years in Paraguay with the Peace Corps, working on food security and agroforestry projects with small farmers, and then two years in Argentina researching vineyard agroforestry systems so Catherine is all of that true
2: that is true it's been 12 years now that bio's a little old um but yes I've been you know into agroforestry all sorts of regenerative farming systems but really into agroforestry for a long time and um yeah I'm I'm so happy to be here thanks for having me So, Jay gave the Google version. Do you
1: have anything else you want to add before we jump into the discussion?
2: Well, so I'll just tell you a little bit about my role at NCAT. Um, So, yeah, like you said, I'm the agroforestry and sustainable agriculture specialist. Um, We've got all sorts of different specialists. So, you know, each, each person has their own area of expertise. And my area of expertise is agroforestry. Uh, So I get to provide technical assistance and training and education uh, to farmers and ranchers every day so that they can farm more regeneratively. And I I truly, I have the best job in the world. I'm so lucky. Um, So yeah, I'm an agroforestry nerd and I am so excited to talk about agroforestry today and food forestry and forest farming and what the difference is between all those things.
1: Right. So just before we go, I'd like to just understand a little bit about what got you interested in this, because you it feels like when I look at the your history that you've been a pioneer. Uh, I know this is an old uh, system that our ancestors used, but it's not it's not an old system with modern people. So what what got you interested so early?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I, I grew up in the city Um, I did not come from a farming background, but I knew that I wanted to be a farmer since I was five years old. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I really, because I'm from the city, I am interested in ways of applying agriculture to urban areas. And like you said, food forestry is an ancient practice. Um, It's been around for millennia. And in fact, there's evidence that the entire Amazon rainforest is really a food forest that was intentionally planted by indigenous peoples, you know, like since time immemorial. And so but 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 now um, this food forestry is being applied to urban spaces. And that is really interesting to me because like I said, I'm from the city, and so it's an agricultural practice that can be applied right to my own backyard. Um, to bring the community together and to produce healthy food locally. So that's really important to me, um, just from my background as a city girl.
1: Yeah. Great. So so the, the thing is, there are a lot of terms that people throw around when it comes to food forests, and I know we'll talk some of those today, but could you just tell us a little bit about what's the difference between food forests, food forest gardens, and food forest farming?
2: Yes. It, there are so many terms, it can get confusing, but um, the, way, the way I like to think about it is there's one umbrella term called agroforestry, and underneath that umbrella term, there are all these other terms, um, and basically in, in, in temperate regions like the U.S., there are six different recognized practices or basically ways of arranging your trees and crops and animals into a single system. Um, and forest farming is one of them, and food forestry is another one of them. And there are also other practices like silvopasture and alley cropping and uh, windbreaks. There there are lots of these different terms, um, but basically, in a nutshell, both food forestry and forest farming are different agroforestry practices. Um, and sh- should I get into kind of the differences between those two systems? That would be,
1: that would be great.
2: Yeah. Okay, so forest farming, um, you know, it all these terms, they, they, they can take a lot of different forms. But in a nutshell, forest farming is the practice of planting high-value understory crops under an existing or planted stand of overstory trees. Um, so this could be like a native forest with uh, an understory crop of like ginseng or shiitake mushrooms, or you could so have... You're
1: basically an... saying the word understory means that you're planting underneath each of the layers. Like, so if you've got a big pecan tree and then you've got maybe a, uh, a, a, um, some kind of no, uh, regular uh, fruit tree, and then maybe a dwarf fruit tree and you just keep coming down to you've used up all that real estate. That's what the understory is, right?
2: Yeah. So yeah, I, that, that's a good point. I would say the overstory is the highest layer of foliage um, in a forest ecosystem. And then, the understory is any lower layer of foliage in a forest ecosystem. So, you know, there could be, there's always an overstory and there could be multiple layers of understory or just one layer of understory. So it really depends on your system, but there is always an overstory and an understory. Um, So, you you know, in, in forest farming, there's typically you've got your overstory. And then under that, there's typically only one or two layers of understory because the overstory trees are typically spaced so close together, that very little light comes through the canopy to reach that understory layer. So you can typically only have one or two understory layers in forest farming. Now in food forestry, you can have up to seven layers. So it, you know, it's, it's a little bit different in food forestry. Your overstory trees are typically spaced further out. Um, some of them are a little bit shorter. And so there is more light that can reach other layers like bushes and herbaceous crops and vines and roots and all these other types of crops. Um, so that's a little bit of the difference. It's it's kind of hard to visualize, Um But that's, that's how I like to think of it. Like a forest farming, you could think of an overstory of like native forest with, you know, one layer of ginseng or shiitake mushrooms underneath. Um, And then food forestry could be like an overstory of really, really tall trees an understory of medium sized trees and then bushes and then herbaceous crops and then ground cover and then vines and then roots. And they all kind of work together, so that's that's kind of the difference. Could could you say what herbaceous means? Herbaceous. Her, her, herbaceous. So that would be um, you know any like annual crops. I would say um, just shorter crops like broccoli, um, lettuce, tomatoes, asparagus. All the um, conventional stuff. Yeah, or just you know like shorter crops. Um, yeah.
0: I think Annie's trying to dumb this down so even I can understand it. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> he hears this a lot, yeah. just by accident, not because he's <laughs> terribly interested. But
2: well, yeah, well, there are so many terms, and it it can get confusing. And you know, it really we do overcomplicate it with all these different terms. I think um, really, it's just it comes down to diversity, right? Yes, and that's, that's what you're going right. for in food forestry. In a in a food forest, you're going for Lots and lots of diversity. Yeah,
0: I was I was going to mention because something you had said about the Amazon. Uh, I was reading a, a Louis L'Amour Western type novel, um, and and he actually mentioned in that saying that when the when the people arrived at the Americas, they thought they were viewing virgin forests, but that the forests had actually been managed by native people for, for thousands of years, you know, and I, I just thought that was an interesting comment in a, in a Louis L'Amour book.
2: Totally. Yeah. And I'm glad, I'm glad that that is being recognized because that is the way it is. All of our forests across the world have been intentionally planted and stewarded and stewarded and propagated. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just neat that that's finally being recognized. It should, it should be talked about. Yep. It's a, it's a
1: great thing. And it, and I think it offers a lot of hope for the future yeah. um, to know that. So let's keep going. Cause the next thing on the list is silvopasture. And I always feel like that's a buzzword in my life. It feels like a buzzword. <laughs> I know it's not, but it just feels like that. People will say, Oh, are you silvopasture? I'm like, no, I don't always know exactly what that means. I'm just doing what makes sense, what nature tells me. listening to my land, listening to the plants there. And then that tells me what to do next. So,
2: so yeah, that's a great question. Silvopasture is another one of these terms that falls under that umbrella term of agroforestry. And silvopasture is really just integrating trees, pasture and livestock into a single system um, in an an intentional way. And so that could look like... um, you know, it could look like planting trees into a pasture uh, and then rotating cattle underneath. It could be rotating baby doll sheep under an orchard. It could be, you know, even just like there are pastured poultry silver pasture systems, which just means, you know, having chickens under an orchard system or under under a, a, a thinned forest system. So there's so many different ways that silver pasture can look, but it really it focuses on having an animal component integrated with tree and pasture components.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute, because one of the things that the, uh, us department of agriculture, uh, has traditionally frowned on is that type of integration of livestock with woodland. And, um, even though all the animals that we tend to raise are woodland animals and, um, and so, uh, the first time I learned about this, and I'd like you to give us some examples, but I read in The Guardian a few years ago about a couple of really big estates, um, gentried estates there, where they owned like a 1,000 acres. They were gonna lose the, the farm, as they say, and they decided that they would practice silvoculture, uh, pasturing. And so what they did is they just put a fence all the way around this perimeter, and then they introduced different livestock, like p- hogs and cattle and so forth. And what began to happen was new plants appeared that hadn't been seen in 150 years. Um, new birds came that hadn't been seen in a couple of hundred years. And <clears throat> they brought themselves out of a bankruptcy state because of what they were able to produce naturally. And it just feels like that is a good marriage of livestock uh, practices and raising food. But I don't know about doing that on a smaller piece of land. How how do you see that working?
2: Yeah, you can do it on any size land. And, you know, you, you brought up a really good point because, um, you know, there's definitely a right way and a wrong way to do it. If you just like let a bunch of cattle into the forest, they can do some harm to the tree's root systems and into the trees themselves. So you definitely want to make sure that you're, um, you know, introducing the right amount of animals for your piece of land. You want to make sure that you're thinning some trees so that there's enough light to um, to reach, you know, pasture below so that cattle can survive. And so they're getting the right amount of nutrition Um, you know, you want to make sure that you're rotating your animals well. So there, there are a lot of things to think about. And I think that, um, you know, the USDA frowns upon just like letting big cattle run wild in the forest. And, you know, there's, there are reasons for that, but if you do it in an intentional way, you're right. It's, it has so many benefits. And like you mentioned, you, you can produce more per acre with silvopasture systems, um, and with any agroforestry system they're on average 1.4 times more productive than monoculture systems so yeah it, i mean that's a really great money maker for for farms um but definitely you can do silva pasture on a small scale and like okay for example i, I worked on a, a a food forest and silva pasture system in san diego which you know urban area this was a farm it was eight acres in the middle of a city. And we had about four acres that was dedicated to, um, a chicken silva pasture system. And so we had, you know, an orchard of elderberry trees and pomegranate trees. And in between we had chickens go through and it was incredible. They were good at doing pest control. They were kind of like the tillage for us. So we didn't have to, you know, go through with the tractor. Like they would, they would shallowly till up the ground just enough, um, to to like get rid of weeds, uh, but you know they didn't do any like deep tillage, which is so you know bad for the soil. It was it was just amazing, and we were able to do that on a very small scale. So I'd say that you know any agroforestry practice you could apply on a large scale or a small scale, which which is super cool.
0: Okay, well I'm going to jump in here and remind everybody that you are listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jane Annie Warmke. Reminding you, it is indeed the end of the world as we know it. And thank God, thank God. So I interrupted uh, Catherine Favor, and Catherine is a sustainable agriculture specialist with the National Center for Appropriate Technologies. And Catherine, before you get back into the into the weeds of, of, <laughs> of this, um, I just wanted to find out what is what is exactly the National Center for Appropriate Technology, because I. I saw in your in your um, details at your website it's it's sort of uh, highlighted small is beautiful the book that came out in 1973 by uh, Schumacher and and I was just wondering is that kind of the whole focus um, you know I mean how did that all play out and what do you guys do
2: Yeah, it is the focus. That is how we started. We we were born out of the idea of um, you know this appropriate technology m- movement, which like you said, uh, focusing on small local solutions. Um, And we do a few different things. We have an energy uh, team at NCAT. And so we work on a lot of different energy initiatives uh, from solar to, you know, weatherizing houses. And then we have our sustainable agriculture team and that's what I'm on. And we actually manage the ATRA project, uh, ATRA program which is also known as the National Sustainable Agriculture Information Service. And so we provide free technical assistance in training uh, and education and educational resources to anyone, any farmer or rancher. So my, my favorite thing that we have, we have a free hotline and anyone can just call us up with any question under the sun about production or farming or how to be more sustainable. And you can actually talk to a human and just, yeah, talk and get answers for um, any question you have. So, you know, we we do a lot of great things. And um, yeah, like I said, we have 30 different specialists, all with a different area of expertise. And I'm the agroforestry girl. So um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to be of service. Um, anyone can call me up or email me and I'd be happy to chat. Yeah.
1: Well, that's great, Um, and so what I would like to do is bring us back to the list. Um, Always the taskmaster.
0: <laughs> I'm just listening. I want to. I want to just call up Catherine just to, uh, you know, ask about the weather in California. That, that sounds like
1: that. it's it's <laughs> great today. It's great uh-huh. today. All right, we don't want to hear about. <laughs> There's that.
0: snow on the ground
1: it, here. No, we have sun, and we forgot what it looked like, but it came out this morning. So, or as our grandchild used to say, it came in. The sun <laughs> is in. She would say, which makes perfect sense. Anyway. Um so the next thing on the list of for food for agroforestry and uh food forests is alley cropping. And could you give us a little bit of definition of that and how it's utilized?
2: Yeah. So alley cropping that would be the practice of planting understory crops between rows of overstory trees. Uh so you could imagine having this this could be any crops. Um, I've seen alley cropping systems with rows of pecan trees with wheat grown in the middle, uh, or you could do rows of veggies in the middle. It really, it really could be anything. You do want to be intentional about what trees you're pairing with what crops. Um, because definitely, you know, in any agroforestry system, your overstory and your understory are going to be competing for resources. In particular, they're mostly going to be competing for water, nutrients, and light. And so definitely when you're pairing an overstory tree component with an understory crop component, you're going to want to make sure that they're kind of complementary, and that they're not going to be competing too much for water, nutrients, and light. Um, So, and and there are, there's a lot that goes into that, but in a nutshell, that that's what alley cropping is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That will, what we're doing at Blue Rock Station, um, is for now called alley cropping, although the intention starting with the new plants that will arrive, the new material that will arrive at the end of March, then we will begin to plant um, basically like it's a forest and just sort of willy-nilly things will go where they're going to go and we're going to have a planting day and everything. So um, but I had to laugh cause somebody came and said, oh, you're alley cropping. And I'm like, no,
2: we're not alley cropping. <laughs> we're just getting started. So Oh, there's anyway. so many terms. And you know, the, these systems evolve over time. Like yes, you can yes, start out with an alley cropping system that turns into a silvopasture system or food forest or forest garden, you know, and it, it is kind of silly to, to create these boxes for all these ways of just planting. Um. So, yeah, you know, yeah, you're probably doing lots of different cool things with your land and it's, it is kind of silly to put it into boxes.
1: Well, you know, the brain does that when it's got that short term memory and it sticks it in some place that, so it can remember it because it pairs it up with something else. That's what I figure people are doing. So anyway, so then the, the last category that I have is windbreaks. If you could talk a little
2: bit about that and some examples. Yeah. So windbreaks are rows of trees that are typically planted on the edges of fields um, or in strategic locations within your field with the primary goal of slowing down wind um, and then reducing uh, erosion from wind. Um, They can also be used to attract pollinators or beneficial insects. So hedgerows are another term that kind of go along with windbreaks. Um, So they're typically linear plantings Like I said, along the edges Um, and they really, I mean, trees, it's, it's incredible. They can really slow down wind and prevent a ton of soil erosion. Um, You know, and this is what we saw like after the great depression there, you know, we, we had the dust bowl, right and yeah. um that was because there were no trees slowing down wind and so we had this movement uh, the conservation corps was formed to plant windbreaks throughout the US and they really were functional and since then it's so sad because so many of those windbreaks have since been taken out but we've really got to get back to to replanting them because they i mean just a few rows of trees are are hugely beneficial to to farms
0: Okay. Well, um, one thing that I had a question about here is I know that uh, coming from the National Center for Appropriate Technology, is this kind of concepts that we're talking about, can it be scaled to actually compete or replace um, the big industrial agricultural system that's developed over over the last number of decades? Is this something that's even possible?
2: I think so, for sure. I mean, the neat thing about Agroforestry, all these practices that we're talking about, is that there are so many ecological benefits. You know, like you mentioned, and, you know, they provide habitat to wildlife and they reduce reliance on agrochemicals. They are just so beneficial. They sequester carbon dioxide, but they also have a ton of economic benefits. Um, I briefly mentioned it, but agroforestry systems on average produce 140% more than monocultures do. And so these systems, you can, you can apply them on a large scale and you're actually making more money. So, and, and you're having, you know, your, your farm's going to be more resilient. Um, It's going to be more resilient in terms of just, it's, you know, the, the farm ecosystem. And also because, you know, if you have more than one crop, um, if, if the market goes down for one crop, you've got another crop to fall back on. So, they're, they're, these systems make sense economically and ecologically, which is so cool. So, I think they totally can be scaled. Like, honestly, agroforestry is going to save the world, I think.
1: Well, one of the things that I think is that because of climate adaptation and the need to do that, every farmer should have a climate adaptation plan. Otherwise, they're just asking for trouble. That a lot of the monoculture is going to be driven by needing to adapt to systems like this, but we're also going to have better, we need better educated monoculture, mono producer people, because a lot of times they're just the factory workers of the farm. So anyway, that's my opinion. Um, So how, how do you think food forests mimic the structure and composition of an early forest that's trying to take back the pasture land or the area that that's um, available?
2: Yeah. So, so food forests, you know, going back to kind of what that practice is. Again, it's it's about seven layers of um, foliage, and you know, like we mentioned, it's typically an overstory of trees, an understory of taller trees, then bushes um, and shrubs, and and then understory crops and vines. Um, and the reason that we like to say they look like early succession forests is because. Early succession forests, those are typically forests where tree canopies are smaller. The tree canopies don't dominate the entire site. Um, And and so the canopy is not closed, which means a lot of light can still enter down into the understory layers. And what this means is that forests at this stage of succession typically have high species diversity. So, you know, it's not just like- They have what? They have what? High species diversity. So with it's it's oh, not just a like plant. oh okay yeah. All right. so it's not just like redwoods you know redwood space really close together um, with a really dense canopy where no light can enter to the understory below it's it's typically smaller trees and a lot of light can still enter so there's also room for shrubs and um, ground cover and you know things like that and so that's what we're trying to mimic when we design food forests. Um, you know, we're really trying to maximize species diversity uh, and, you know, so that you can get a a wide diversity of crops. Yeah. I I don't know if that, if that makes sense.
1: No, it makes perfect sense. So we're going to be at the end. We've got one minute. So I was wondering if you could just give us a couple of points about how food forests really do benefit communities.
2: Oh yeah. I think there are so many benefits. Um, You know, they can be really great spaces for the community to connect. If they are, you know, community forests, food forests, um, they can be hubs for people to come together, for people to meet their neighbors. Uh, they can be used as outdoor classrooms. I know like Miami, Miami-Dade County, they actually have food forests in 28 schools. And these food forests are used as outdoor classrooms for kids. And um, you know, in, in if they're in urban areas, food forests can be a refuge for humans to connect with nature, or they can be, you know, habitat for wildlife, biodiversity. That's that's super important. But um, you know, I think I think like the, the thing about this this system in particular is that they're able to produce a high volume and a high variety of food in a really small area. So that is really, really great for urban areas or for, for your backyard. You know, just okay. for homesteading.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. You've been listening to "When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine" with Jay and Annie Warmke. We want to thank our guest here today. Thank you, Catherine Catherine Favor from uh, the National Center for Appropriate Technology. Thank you very much. And we want to thank our Emmy Award winning <laughs> producer, who has the statue sitting right next to his bedstand. I'm sure, Adam Rich. <laughs> And we want to thank you for spending just a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother hopefully told you, the secret to a happy and sustainable life is...
1: My grandma said, play nice with others, clean up your own mess, and Jay, eat your veggies.
0: Only from a sustainable food source. All right? Until <laughs> next time.
1: Bye-bye.